<clears throat> welcome, welcome to the um, second in this year's Mershon Speaker Series on Islam and Democracy. Um, the series is sponsored jointly by the Honors and Scholars Program, the Middle East Studies uh, Center, uh, and the Political Science Department, uh, together with uh, the Mershon Center. I want to be sure to get all of those institutions uh, in. Um, our uh, speaker today is uh, Lisa Blades, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. <coughs> at Stanford University, Lisa has her PhD from uh, UCLA in 2008, and it won uh, two uh, very prestigious uh, awards in the American Political Science Association for best dissertation in comparative politics um, and for best dissertation on comparative uh, democratization. So these are the two most, in political science, in comparative politics, the subfield that she is a part of, these are the two most prestigious dissertation uh, prizes, and she won them uh, both in 2008, which is really terrific. Uh, she's just published her first book, Elections and Distributive Politics in Mubarak's Egypt, uh, that's from the uh, dissertation. Um, but she's not going to be talking about that subject today, although uh, she said that uh, she'll be happy to entertain questions on Mubarak's Egypt uh, in the, uh, the Q&A afterwards. Uh, but today she's speaking on uh, the feudal revolution and Europe's rise, institutional divergence in the Muslim and Christian worlds before 1500 uh, BC. Uh, CE, 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 a common era, not BC. Uh, please join me in welcoming Lisa Blake. <laughs> Thank you for the kind introduction, Bill. I guess as somebody who works on contemporary Egypt, I had a real desire to try to understand how did we get to this place in Middle Eastern politics today um, in terms of not only the um, predominance of authoritarian government, but also the relative underdevelopment of the Islamic world um, compared to other parts of the world. And you know, when you travel in the region, people have a great pride for the history of the Muslim world in terms of its economic development during the Golden Age, a point at which um, the Islamic world was really ahead of Europe in a lot of ways in terms of scientific development, in terms of the level of urbanization of society, which is seen as a marker of development. And um, so, you know, I wanted to try to write something that got at this question of why did Europe and the Islamic world diverge in such dramatic ways over really what is a relatively short period of time, right, sort of thinking about what was happening in these two world regions over the last 1,500 years to try to understand, you know, how did we, how did we get to this point today? So um, I just wanted to begin with a, sort of a quick uh, comparison to give you a sense of how Europe might have compared to Egypt. Um, in the medieval period. So these were two areas that really had quite similar levels of GDP, similar population sizes, similar levels of royal control, the predominance of agriculture in both places, and a comparable percentage of their economy that was um, derived from long distance trade. England was an actual island, uh, in Egypt sort of a functional island as a result of the desert on three sides and then sort of the Mediterranean on the north shore. These were two areas in the medieval period that actually suffered from basically the same disease environment. So there was the plague in England, there was also the plague in Egypt that people don't talk about quite um, as much. And if we even look at levels of agricultural development, we see, although there was less arable land in Egypt, it was um, twice as productive as the arable land in England. So they actually, the two areas actually had comparable levels of agricultural output. 
But by the 13th century, we see that um, England is already starting to develop forms of constraint on their monarch, right? We have the promulgation of the Magna Carta in 1215, eventually the development of English Parliament, the Glorious Revolution, which many say was um, a point at which uh, the nobility began to really exercise a lot of control over the monarchy the Industrial Revolution, and then, you know, a point today where at the time of the Egyptian Revolution, the 25th of January, sort of as the starting point of this, 40% um, of Egyptians are living on less than $2 a day, and $2 in London won't even buy you a cup of coffee, right? So, um, you know, how did we get here? And so part of why I wanted to write this paper was, was to talk about that process. So um, this is the social science puzzle that I'm trying to address here. Many scholars, both political scientists and economists, will argue that the roots of Europe's economic rise can be found in its unique institutional framework. So we have the literature written by um, Barry Weingast, Doug North, um, Deron Asamoglu, Jim Robinson, these scholars who write about um, how good institutions can lead to good economic outcomes. In other words, when you're able to develop rule of law, property rights, and constraint on the executive, this can have very good effects on investment and the ability of um, entrepreneurs basically to grow their businesses in a way that's, that's good for development and industrialization. What I would argue is the problem with this literature, though, is that um, existing studies tend to focus on European institutions after the year 1500. So this is sort of the break point when people talk about the importance of the New World discoveries and the role that they had on the development of Europe, um, while noting that Europe's initial institutional framework already favored development. So we have, um, you know, North and Weingast finding that English institutions provided checks on the sovereign from a relatively early, in other words, medieval date. And we have Asamoglu and Robinson arguing that European political institutions to pri prior to 1500 already placed significant checks on the monarch. And when you read the scholarly work of these individuals, they tend to ascribe um, Europe's success in terms of developing these good institutions to a quote-unquote lucky break, right? That something happened in Europe that was better than what was happening in other parts of the world in terms of the uh, constraint on monarch that led to these good institutional outcomes. And what I would argue is that our understanding of this puzzle of why the Islamic world and the Christian world diverged in terms of their economic outcomes was, has been hampered by two factors. One is that data limitations have made statistical analysis of the roots of Western European political institutions very difficult. And the second is that it's virtually impossible to explain how Europe came to develop growth-promoting institutions with, through an examination of Europe alone. So this, I would say, is sort of a plea for the comparative method that it's really important to think about Europe in a broader comparative context. And so the contributions, I think, in this paper are threefold. The first is that a comparison with the Islamic world suggests that differences in military recruitment, particularly elite military recruitment, impacted state-society relations in some very fundamental ways. And that these differences may have had important implications for executive constraint, political stability, and ultimately economic development. The second contribution would be the use of data that, as far as I know, has not been analyzed before in this way, um, which is data on the duration of over 3,000 European and Muslim rulers from the period of about 650 to 1500. And there are a couple of key empirical findings here. The first is that before the year 1000, Islamic sultans are actually much more long-lived or long-lived um, statistically than their European counterparts. 
But by the year 1300, we see a reversal, and rulers in the Western Europe are in power for 10 years longer than sultans in the Muslim world. And if we use uh, trend break algorithms to try to figure out when did Europe change, these seem to indicate that the year 790 was sort of the break date in Western European political trajectory. And you know, for those of you who remember your Occidental Civilization history classes, this uh, corresponds to about the midpoint of the reign of Charlemagne. And Charlemagne was really responsible for rolling out a number of institutions associated with feudalism. So all of this is to suggest that Western Europe and the Islamic world diverged politically before there was any sign of an economic divergence, right? So by in the 12th century, we see that this is sort of the um, high point of medieval um, Islamic economic development. And what, we're, what I'm arguing here is that there was something that was going on, perhaps sort of imperceptible to the rulers and citizens of these societies in terms of political stability from a much earlier date. So um, in recent years, we've seen a number of historical works being put forward that offer a comparison of development in Europe to development in China. And I think part of this is a response to um, sort of the rise of China economically over the last 20 to 30 years. But what I would argue is that um, the Islamic world actually provides an even more important comparison to Western Europe. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. The first is that Muslim states actually ruled over some of the wealthiest provinces of ancient Rome and not only had um, access to the institutional heritage of Rome, but also to the institutional heritage of ancient Greece and in some cases even the Germanic states. So there's sort of a common frame of reference with regard to law and political institutions that you have for many of the Islamic societies that you do not have um, in a comparison of Europe to China. In both cases we see that um, Christian Europe and the Muslim world were largely agrarian. These were agricultural societies. And like Christian Europe, the Islamic world possessed a politically influential clergy. So we can sort of, um, in, a, in a sort of loose sense, hold constant the influence of church or, st or mosque in this case, in terms of the influence on political um, outcomes. Yet no landed aristocracy or gentry emerged in the Islamic world nor did nascent parliamentary institutions um, develop in the Islamic world for many, many years. And so there's this question of why. Why didn't we see the development of parliaments in the Islamic world like we did in Christian Europe? And another way to sort of phrase this question is how were Muslim rulers able to circumvent the emergence of the type of landed aristocracy that proved so critical to constraining monarchs in Europe? So we know that the people who inhabited those early parliaments in Europe were often large landowners. Right, so this, this was a place where landowners negotiated with their monarch, and this type of negotiation did not take place in the Islamic world. And so, um, you know, this paper really seeks to try to explain why. Um, the argument that I want to make is related to a divergence in political institutions, particularly institutions re uh, related to the recruitment of elite military um, officers. So in this sort of um, world following the fall of the Roman Empire, there was a great deal of institutional innovation taking place. We see in Christian Europe that um, European monarchs were actually quite weak. Not only were they politically weak, but they were also financially and bureaucratically weak. They didn't have the capacity to collect taxes, and in the absence of that capacity, um, rulers like Charlemagne required landlords to contribute troops instead of funds in order to fight wars against foreign enemies. Simultaneously or contemporaneously, we see that there was a revolution in the way 
warfare was being conducted. So the stirrup was introduced around this point in time, which made possible a new kind of warfare, something that, they, that was called mounted shock combat. So the stirrup allows you to sort of um, hold your body closer to the horse in a way that you may actually fight on horseback that wasn't possible before. And this was really an advantage in terms of battlefield tactics. And so um, monarchs like Charlemagne wanted to have a larger contingent of these mounted shock combat troops. The problem with mounted shock combat is it's very expensive, in fact, to have um, all of the things that you need in order to hold, uh, in order to have this kind of warfare. So not only do you need to have a horse, which is a tremendous investment, but you need the um, groomsmen who will care for that horse, the feed for that horse, the coat of arms that you wear while you're engaging in this form of mounted shock combat. And so um, it was quite a costly thing to ask these um, basically landholders and, and wealthy individuals to donate this type of um, soldier to the, to the king. And so what, ha what happened was that rulers like Charlemagne began to give, give land to the individuals who were engaged in this mounted shock combat, who made the investment to pay for the horse and all the accoutrement necessary to be this type of fighter. And so these were basically the fiefs, and the mounted shock combat troops were knights. And this is um, sort of the feudal system that developed um, around manorialism in Western Europe during this point in time. Now what we see happening in the Islamic world is a very different type of innovation with regard to elite military recruitment. Muslim rulers did not rely on local elites as soldiers for their, uh, as the backbone or officer corps for their militaries. Instead, they came to rely on people known as the Mamluks. These were elite military slaves who were imported from non-Muslim lands. So in Islam, you cannot um, enslave a person of the book. The people of the book are the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims. So to find slaves, they actually had to travel to the far reaches of the Islamic world where they would basically find um, and purchase or sometimes steal young boys, um, eight, nine, ten years old, and bring them to Muslim capitals where these boys would be housed, um, trained, and would become this elite military force. Now, the Mamluks were not sort of the slaves you think of typically, um, you know, from the, for example, the United States context or even the Roman context. Um, but these were individuals who would serve as um, sort of the treasurer of the state or a provincial governor, or a falconer, people who had um, major military responsibilities. Um, these were also individuals who um, were chosen in part because they had a certain type of ruggedness, right? These children were typically came from um, areas of uh, the Caucasus or Central Asia where they grew up on horseback and as being able to battle on horseback became more and more important. It was believed they had some very native abilities as a result of sort of being on horseback on the steps from an early age. Um, the Mamluks that were brought from the Caucasus or from Central Asia were also thought to be more rugged than individuals who sort of grew up in the urban centers or even the agrarian areas of the Islamic world, right? These were people who were used to um, living under harsh conditions, um, often deprived of, you know, basic needs food. They could, you know, sort of sleep anywhere. And so they were thought to be um, the best fighters that a sultan could get. 
So this institution of Mamlukism um, was first introduced in the early 9th century in the area that is now Iraq, and it very quickly spread to many, many other polities. So not all Mamluks were from Central Asia or the Caucasus. There are examples of black Mamluks, for example, from Africa, um, from Albania, from the other fringes of the Islamic world. But the uh, Mamluks that, that were from this area were considered sort of the, the best and were most prominent and most common. Now, Mamluks were really characterized by, by two things. One was what we can call a sort of cultural dissociation. So what does this mean? These young boys were brought in, and they were barracked separately from the rest of society. Women would be, um, female slaves would also be brought from these areas who they would be married to. They would not marry into the local population. They maintained their own local languages, their own names. And although they would convert to Islam, they would not have the types of ties to the local community you might expect could emerge. Um, the Mamluks were also um, in a dependent relationship on the Sultan, right? The Sultan was seen as their master, in some sense the father. And, um, you know, this was a very traditional master-slave relationship in other ways where they had to um, show their loyalty to, to the Sultan. So this was a very different type of military recruitment that was happening. And so the argument that I want to put forward is that, um, you know, this had really important implications for the type of political and economic development which followed. So we see that while European kings were forced to negotiate with their armed local gentry to raise armies, Islamic rulers completely bypassed local elites by arming foreigners. So we have to think about what are the implications of this. I would argue that Mamlukism limited the bargaining leverage enjoyed by local elites vis-a-vis -vis the Sultan and that this handicapped the development of what we might consider a productively adversarial relationship between ruler and ruled that emerged in Europe. So rather than having to constantly negotiate with your armed uh, agrarian elite over things like the raising of armies, instead the Muslim societies were able to really um, bypass that process entirely. Now, the Mamluks were not able to transform themselves into a hereditary landed baronage, in part because Mamluk status could not be transmitted to one's children. So there was a sense that what made Mamluks such effective fighters, growing up on the steppe, growing up on horseback, these were not traits that their children shared. And so the children of Mamluks were not Mamluks. They eventually became parts of the general society. And if you go to a place like Egypt today, people will um, sort of... Um, say, oh, well, you know, I have Turkish blood. This basically means that they believe that at some point in the past there was a Mamluk who was in, in their lineage. Um, and so, you know, this raises this question of why not indirect rule in the Islamic world like we saw emerge in Europe. And here we have the really outstanding work of the Princeton historian Patricia Crone, who has a direct, she compares directly the Abbasids, who introduced Mamlukism, to the Carolingians, um, of whom Charlemagne was one. And she argues that both um, polities face the challenge of creating sort of a new political model where there was no clear model in the sort of face of the fall of the Roman Empire. And here she writes, quote, both fell back on private ties, and in, the and in both cases the outcome was political fragmentation. But because the fiscal and administrative machinery survived in the East, the Abbasids could simply buy the retainers they needed, and so they lost their power not to lords and vassals, but to freedmen, where freedmen are the manumitted Mamluks. In order to command an army of Muslims, they had to free the Mamluks, you know, not, they weren't actually made, um, uh, 
sort of free in the sense that they could sort of go off into society, but they were freed in order to serve as the heads of the battalions they were um, they were managing. So the idea here is that the East was actually wealthier, that when the Muslims overtook areas of the Sassanid dynasty, the Byzantine dynasty, they actually inherited both a lot of wealth and a lot of bureaucratic capacity. And this allowed them to engage in this incredibly costly, long-sided process of finding these 10-year-old children, importing them, housing them, training them for a decade before they were ever even useful fighting force. Whereas in Europe, um, the Europeans simply didn't have the funds or the capacity to do that. So the story I'm trying to tell is in some ways kind of a reversal of fortune story. It was indeed because the Islamic world was so wealthy and so bureaucratically advanced that they didn't need to develop the types of ties with the local population that, was, that were necessary in the European context where monarchs did not have the same degree of fiscal or bureaucratic capacity. So. Um, if we believe that institutions related to military recruitment impact state-society relations, um, then the argument would be that this should manifest itself in some way on, in this data that um, I've collected on ruler duration. So here um, I'm concentrating on the interval um, from about 600 to 1500 Common Era. And the data come from two sources primarily. One is the New Islamic Dynasties um, volume, which has data on ruler duration for over 1,700 rulers from about 630 to 1,500. The second is on a um, volume, just Dynasties of the World, where basically a historian has gone out and collected data on ruler duration for over 1,300 rulers during this period. And I believe that this type of data was originally collected um, by not just historians, but people who had an interest in the study of numismatics, right? So if you imagine the study of ancient coinage, these were people who were interested in understanding who is the face on the coin that's been collected, and when did this, when was this coin struck, right? Not only who is this ruler, but, but when, when did this coin come from? And so, you know, there was a desire to try to create these logs or lists of not only the dynasties, but then the particular rulers who were part of this dynasty. So I think that this, um, these sorts of manuals or um, volumes come out of, of this literature and interest in the study of ancient coinage. And so um, what I have here is just the summary statistic, basically the moving average of mean ruler duration for Western Europe and the Islamic world for the period um, under study. Western Europe, where in about 630 Common Era, we see that Christian rulers are surviving on average about 10 years in office. So this is mean ruler duration on this axis, and here this is the year 600 to about 1500. So we see for the Christian trend line, it's actually sort of, um, it's about five years less than Muslim ruler duration for about the first 200 years of Islam. But we see here at around 800 that something different starts to happen. And Christian rulers become very long-lived and increasingly long-lived over time until about the period of 13, 1400, where we see then a little decline in ruler durability that I would argue is related to the emergence of absolutism. What we see in the Islamic world is sort of this increase in ruler durability, but then a relatively um, soft sort of downward slope in ruler durability over time. So the Christians are basically doubling their time in office, Christian kings, between about 800 
1250 Common Era, while the Muslims are going from a peak of almost 18 years in office per individual down to what used to be sort of the Christian average of about 11 or 12 years in office, right? So, you know, this would suggest that there was something very important happening if rulers are surviving in longer for such divergent periods of time, and that this divergence seemed to happen relatively early. You know, the lines sort of crossed before even the year 1000. So, um, I don't want to spend too long sort of talking about the regression analysis, but um, these are basically uh, very simple regressions where duration is the dependent variable and there are uh, sort of dummy variables entered for each of the centuries. And what we can see is that the European trend is an increasing duration. The Islamic world, we see a slight increase and then a decline in duration. And what's interesting here is we can sort of look at the difference between the two. And then um, in this fourth column, control for things like uh, region and geography. So um, prevalence of malaria, for example, the elevation, um, different types of geographic controls you might think would be important. And we can see even after controlling for geography that the European dynasties are becoming more stable over time. And then this final column, looks at political stability just within the Iberian Peninsula. So we know that there were Muslim and there were Christian rulers who were in um, sort of the Andalus in the, in the Iberian area. And we can see that even just holding constant geography and sort of the shared cultural heritage of both the Roman world and the Germanic tribes, that the Christian rulers are becoming more stable over time. So um, this raises the question then of at what point did the European trend change? And so here we can use a trend break algorithm to try to understand this. And the um, trend break algorithm basically goes through sort of an iterative process and says, what is the probability that the trend changed in 600? in 601, six, you know, for every single year, and then gives you a statistic that tells you what is the probability that the trend break was in one particular year versus another, and you can basically just run a loop and do this for every year. And what the trend break algorithm result suggests is that there was a single break that took place, and it was in approximately 790 common era, again, which is sort of the midpoint of the reign of Charlemagne, who was responsible for a lot of the institutional innovations we associate with feudalism. And this single break is robust to a number of different specifications. So this graph just shows, um, sort of moving from 600 to 1400, the F statistic for whether or not the break took place in a particular year. So you can see that the high point is at about this point right around 800. And so um, this is the point I identify then as, as the break in the trend. There's sort of a second mode around 1100, um, but it's a much smaller mode, and it seems as though the real difference is um, what's happening around this critical period of about 800 uh, CE. So if we look just at the, um, at the raw data, we can get a sense of the discontinuity here. So um, in addition to ruler duration on the Islamic world and Christian world, we've also sort of tried to compile data on other parts of the world. Um, and we can see that for political stability in Western Europe, um, you know, rulers are surviving in office around 11 years from about 500 BCE to this point at about 800 CE, right? That there's a lot of stability in terms of how long these rulers are lasting, right? It, it's not moving up and down, and we can sort of look both at this non-parametric fit as well as the fitted values here. But then there's this discontinuity, basically, at 800. Not only is there sort of an immediate jump, 
but then we see the trend line for um, Western European political stability steadily increasing from about 800 um, to 1500 at the end of the period, right? So um, this is just to give you a sense sort of, of of what the data look like with the, again, average ruler duration um, on the y-axis there. So one of the things I'm interested in doing is understanding the causal channel by which we saw this change take place. And so here the argument that I've tried to make is that um, executive constraint or being able to constrain your monarch in some way politically is correlated with ruler durability. So if that's true, what would we need to see in terms of some empirical results? Well, we have um, the work of um, Andre Schleffer and Brad DeLong who've developed a metric of um, executive constraint for some of this period where they try to distinguish between absolutist and feudal monarchs in Europe. Now the data are not a perfect fit for our purposes here um, as they have no variation before the year 1000. They're just looking at the period post 1000 common era. So I supplement this data with some parliamentary data collected by some other economists and basically want to try to think about this idea of are constrained monarchs within Europe more durable than unconstrained monarchs as coded by DeLong and Schleffer? And so what we see here is basically a very similar kind of regression framework, basically these um, dummy variables for each of the centuries, where the constrained monarchs as coded by DeLong and Schleffer are always coming up as being more durable. So this is if we include sort of all the countries, both, both Muslim and Christian <coughs> in the sample, if we look just within the Latin Christian world, um, if we look at all of the countries and then hold constant regional geographic dummies, if we look just within the Christian world and hold constant the re regional and geographic dummies, and then finally what I think is sort of the most interesting test maybe um, is what the political scientists might call sort of the fixed effects test. So holding constant um, the states, contemporary state location, what impact does it have to move from an, being an unconstrained to a constrained monarch? And here this suggests that there's about a six and a half year bump in durability for moving from unconstrained to constrained, right? So there are some real advantages um, from the perspective of the ruler in terms of how long you're going to survive in office by allowing there to be some form of constraint um, in the political system. And we can think of a couple of different reasons why this might be the case, right? If you think from a game theoretic perspective, you're basically um, decreasing the size of the payoff or the wedge between what the landowners are getting versus what the monarch is getting. Another way to think about this would be um, sort of in terms of a soft contract, right? So if you imagine that landowners and elites have to sort of renegotiate their rights and privileges with successive kings, that you want to keep in power a king who you have sort of negotiated a good deal with, right? So if the king is making concessions, offering you rights, um, that this is a monarch perhaps you want to keep in power for longer. So another test that I think is interesting is to consider um, what happens within dynasties, right? So these are rulers that are embedded within particular lines of kings. So where executive constraint exists, the individual attributes of a ruler should matter less for duration. So this is sort of an assumption of this analysis here. So if unconstrained, we should expect ruler duration to be strongly correlated with sovereign specific human capital. So if you think about who starts 
a dynasty, right? This is a person who is endowed or imbued with very, very high levels of human capital. If you think about, you know, Muhammad Ali in Egypt as sort of the first in a line of kings to follow, you know, these are exceptional individuals, right? And so if we think that dynasty founders have a lot of this human capital, we should expect them to survive in office longer, but that for every successive king or sultan in that chain, it should mean revert over time. So here, um, the plots I'm going to show you are simply the non-parametric plots of mean ruler duration for within dynasties, for Islamic dynasties, then the dynasties that um, DeLong and Schleffer code is constrained, and the, the European dynasties that DeLong and Schleffer code is unconstrained. And so here we can see mean ruler duration on the y-axis, again sort of moving from 10 to 20 years. And then your number within the dynasty. So the dynasty founder is sort of person number one, his son, two, three, four, so on, right? Up to, let's say, about 20. And so the dark line here is the Islamic world. The first ruler in an Islamic dynasty survives on average, you know, almost maybe 18 years or so. But then we see this mean reversion. It declines over time within dynasty. And the line just above that is for Western Europe before the year 1000, when Western European monarchs were relatively unconstrained. And we see almost an identical pattern. Within Western European dynasties that are relatively unconstrained, there is this mean reversion over time where the dynasty founder survives the longest and the rest sort of last in office for a shorter period of time. But the top line that's sort of uptrending there is within those Western European dynasties that DeLong and Schleffer code is constrained. And what you can see that is that when there's institutionalization through this form of executive constraint, even though you're not the founder of the dynasty, even though you almost surely have less human capital than um, you know, your father or grandfather, you actually survive in, longer for, uh, survive in office for longer periods of time, right? So this suggests that there's something that's happening in terms of political institutions that will allow you to be durable and it has nothing to do then or has much less to do with those sovereign specific traits that we associate with these um, high competence dynasty founders. So um, here what I've tried to do is identify a divergence in core political institutions for the Christian and Islamic worlds following the fall of the Roman Empire. Have this sort of nice quote from Machiavelli who writes that quote, the kingdoms known to history have been governed in two ways, either by a prince and his servants or by a, prince and, by a prince and by barons. Examples of these two kinds of government in our own time are the Turk, and here he's sort of talking about the Islamic world writ large, and the King of France, right? So, you know, again, I think this sort of speaks to the idea that the Islamic world really is the best point of comparison for um, what was happening in Christian Europe at this point in time. Now, um, I've shown that Europe emerges as more politically stable than the Islamic world, and the roots of this divergence are in the late 8th century, that feudal uh, institutions facilitated forms of executive constraint that had real implications for ruler durability. And, uh, you know, then there's sort of this next order question about what are the implications for understanding economic divergence. Um, we know that in 1000 Common Era, the Islamic world was more economically advanced than Western Europe on a number of measures. In a lot of ways, Western Europe was an economic backwater. But the Islamic world does not develop rule of law or parliamentary institutions, and signs of economic decline become really apparent by the 17th century. So, um, you know, I think the link is a little indirect, but I think that, um, you know, sort of bridging the uh, work of these economists who talk about the importance of institutions and then thinking about these 
institutions pre-1500 sort of brings together the two um, in a way that I, I hope you found convincing. Thank you. So, you know, the analysis stops in 1500, so it, you know, doesn't really deal with some of these later dynasties, but I can give you sort of a sense of um, some of the dynasties included, right? So uh, this includes, um, you know, rulers of Persia, um, Anatolian Turks, um, rulers in West Africa, uh, rulers of the Iberian Peninsula, South Asian rulers. So it really is the Islamic world broadly during this time period. Um, what I will say is that um, I think there might be some uh, benefit to maybe limiting the analysis at some points to just the Mediterranean basin, right? So if we believe that these assumptions about the shared institutional heritage are important, then I think that we could sort of do a, a, a meta-analysis of all of these dynasties, but then maybe also a smaller analysis of those Islamic dynasties that were sort of most proximate to Europe as well. So this is, um, you know, this is something that I'm definitely interested in pursuing. Yes. Uh, one thing uh, that I think maybe you've overlooked is that the church, the Holy mm -hmm. Roman Church, didn't get into the king-making business until about the year 800 mm -hmm. when they crowned Charlemagne. Mm -hmm. Before that, the German and Celtic peoples that had inherited Roman Europe uh, didn't have hereditary kingship. Mm -hmm. and, and so even though there was a constant effort during the Dark Ages to make kingship hereditary, the peoples themselves resisted it. And I think that may have lent a lot of instability mm -hmm. to these institutions that you're looking at. Uh, so uh -huh. I think it, the church itself is a prop for monarchy. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning when you said we're going to hold religion constant, you know, they're vastly Yes, I, I think that that's true. I think, you know, we're holding religion constant in the sense that um, religious authorities were influential in both places and had a political role to play in both. And in some ways, I think maybe we can think about the nature of um, political religious institutions that evolve as being endogenous to the processes that I'm talking about, right? So the increased stability might have an impact even on the way um, these types of church-state relations evolve. So, um, you know, in a sense, yes, I'm black box boxing the, um, the, the, the religious story um, to some degree. I think that there is a narrative to tell there. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I was also sort of responding um, to a literature which argues that, you know, the Islamic world fell behind because of things that were inherent to Islam. And um, part of what I want to try to do here is to say that it, you know, this idea of Mamlukism, it was not something you find in the Quran. You know, this is something that was an institutional innovation that sort of emerged later. And that there, it's, not, there, it's nothing specific about the, the religion itself. 
it happened, it manifested itself in this type of military um, industrial complex, you could say, but um, it really isn't about, it isn't about religion. I think this could be very, you know, debated. Um, and, you know, one of the problems is that there are not a lot of explicit comparisons of the Islamic world and the Christian world sort of during this period um, in time. In fact, this sort of cross-cultural comparison is really still in its infancy. So um, I, I see there's another question over here. Maybe you want to intervene on this point or, okay. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done. I think that we know that Islamic clerics were very influential. Um, for example, in um, parts of Egypt during the medieval period, they would often, um, for example, benefit when um, the Nile tended to flood or was not high enough. They would enjoy a lot of political influence during, during those periods of time, and so maybe not as much political influence when the Nile was sort of at its, its optimal level. right? So these, these types of church-state negotiations, I think, were taking place in the Islamic world during this period in time, though perhaps not in precisely the same form. Yeah. Well, Yes. Yes. So I I agree. I mean, the DeLong and Schleffer um, coding is not ideal, but I think in some sense we wanted to avoid doing our own coding of this concept in order to um, not come under crit criticism of sort of ad hocery, right? So what they're basically doing are trying to decide if these monarchs operated under a feudal system or a more absolutist form of government, right? Is there sort of power sharing? with the landed elite or our decisions sort of all made at the center in a less consensual way. 
Right. That's right. That's right. So the absolutism is sort of a later phenomenon. But, you know, this is this is their characterization of it. It serves, I believe, as a useful sort of proxy for some of the ideas we're talking about. Um, you know, ideally, we would come up with a better way to instrument this. And one thing that, um, you know, I've tried with the data is to look at the distance from Aachen as an instrument for the rollout of feudalism. And in fact, this is the capital of the Charlemagne of Charlemagne's empire. And this, in fact, works as an instrument for uh, constraint, right? So if we believe constraint is was higher sort of closer to where these institutional innovations came from, then, then in fact this does serve as a useful proxy and does produce sort of the result that um, you know I have with the DeLong and Schleffer data. But uh, yeah, in an ideal world there would be a better way to measure these things, but I think part of the challenge of doing this research has always been that there isn't a lot of good data. And so... Um, well, yeah, Thank you. Thank yeah, but if you have ideas for measuring this constraint, this would also be I don't think you can measure. I don't think I would suggest most I guess that's part of the point is to is to be provocative in some sense when you try to give a simple answer to a huge question like this you're really just you know in a way trying to start a debate or begin a discourse or dialogue about um, some of the finer points but um, here it's just a very stylized um, sort of description of what um, what one interpretation of what happened might be yes Yes, I think that, you know, what um, I have here really masks a lot of the important heterogeneity that exists, right? So we know that there are city-states in Italy that are um, having almost a constant turnover in ruler, but in a sense this was because they were so institutionalized, right? So we get to a point like, you know, in Western Europe today, prime ministers rise and fall, and we don't associate this with bad development outcomes or anything, right? They were, they were almost uh, hyper-institutionalized at that point in time in a way that um, 
you know, would work against me finding anything here. But uh, there's still this, this tremendous divergence, even in the face of, of some of this institutionalization. So yet there is absolutely a great deal of heterogeneity. I think, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, you know, I sort of see this as sort of a, a jumping off point for a broader debate and more analysis, more data collection. Yes. Yeah, so these are really interesting arguments, right? And both are sort of related to culture in a way, right? One is this argument that the Germanic tribes had something special about them and that this was actually what caused uh, Western Europe to enjoy this kind of um, democratic set of institutions. And I think in some ways this argument is a very big challenge to what I'm you know, trying to do here because I believe that in some ways the conventional wisdom is that these Germanic tribes were um, proto-democratic and that this had a very positive influence. And here I think that, um, you know, doing sort of the tests on the Iberian Peninsula then become really important, where we had both the Germanic tradition and the Islamic tradition to sort of um, use this as a bit of like a petri dish for what might happen in terms of the ruler durability. But I don't have um, really a response beyond that, right? So. And the argument he, that I'm offering is that it has to do with fiscal and bureaucratic constraints on Charlemagne himself as a ruler and that it was less about um, the cultural component. And that perhaps if Charlemagne had the capacity to do these things, he may have uh, employed Mamluks as well. And indeed we see Europeans employing mercenaries at later points in time when they have the funds and the wherewithal to do that. But it's a very different type of um, 
uh, relationship between monarch and mercenary than between monarch and mamluk. And your other point um, is also very interesting. So sort of the conven another conventional wisdom that exists is that there was something about European Protestantism that was very important for growth that um, you know the Islamic world didn't have within it the entrepreneurial spirit to prosper economically. Okay. Right. Okay. So your argument is about um, the right. Yeah. Well, uh, the. Um, okay, so the, the, the logic of Christian, I mean, some of the, uh, right, you know, uh, Islamic philosophers were very, very advanced during this period in time. I think some people would say, you know, maybe enjoyed a, an advantage over, over Christian philosophers during the medieval period. Um, you know, and I think this sort of anti-establishment um, idea really does come out of the Protestant Reformation, right, the idea that, Right. I mean, it's very possible that that's the case, and in, in which case I would not be able to um, distinguish between the effect of the argument I'm trying to make and, and your argument, right? They would have the same. Um, observable implication in the end. So it's it's hard to um, sort of test these competing arguments. Yes? Why not start with some kind of uh, ecological mm -hmm. uh, explanation of saying what is the character of the production system in different historical times and in different places? So you have, for example, uh, when you're talking about a hunting and gathering society, uh, like you uh, presumably concerned with the German tribes, as opposed to a, an agricultural society in which uh, you have Roman times, then you can ask, what is the pattern of deviation of control given within that mode of production? And so you try to account for the variation as well as the emerging modal pattern. So I think that, um, you know, what I hear you say is very similar to the argument of, you know, for example, Karl Wittvogel and the idea of oriental despotism, mm -hmm. right? That there was something about river societies that had to build up um, agricultural structures around a series of irrigation um, canals that, that led to a type of authoritarian context. And, you know, I, I am sympathetic to these arguments, so I feel as though there's been a lot of historical work that is um, now shown with Vogel to be wrong or at least incomplete, right? That there's been quite a bit of discussion of his um, hypotheses since his work was first published, I believe in the 50s, that um, now has worked to overturn some of his findings. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, this is another argument um, that there's something different perhaps about rain-fed agriculture than irrigated agriculture. Um, here there might be some interesting statistical tests that could be done that would compare parts of the Islamic world that relied perhaps less 
on agriculture, um, irrigated agriculture like um, Nile Valley agriculture. Um, so I, I think that's very interesting and something that would be worth pursuing um, in the future to try to differentiate between these different causal channels. Well, you know, some people would. The real world. <laughs> some people would say the military um, reassertion of power is a kind of new Mamlukism, right? That these guys are the <laughs> are the contemporary Mamluks, and in fact, they're really the power holders. And um, we know that in Egypt's past, the Mamluks have usurped power from the Sultan himself. And it seems as though we've sort of <laughs> we've observed this happening again in in 2011. Let, let, let me start this by asking: Is yeah. there a question? Is there a connection? between the research that you've been talking about today mm -hmm. uh, and the book that you just finished. Is, the, is this research in any way, uh, what, inspired by, or the, does a puzzle come from? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I feel like um, my research agenda has really focused on three areas of what I would call um, Middle Eastern exceptionalism. Why is the Middle East unusually authoritarian? Why is the Middle East underdeveloped relative to what we would believe its sort of potential? And why is the um, Middle East and Islamic world more broadly unusually patriarchal in terms of its treatment of women? And so I think trying to answer these um, questions is, you know, not only sort of normatively important, but that there are also connections maybe between them, right? That the authoritarianism and underdevelopment might have some links, as I'm trying to argue in this paper, that the underdevelopment has some connection to the um, sort of continued patriarchy of many Muslim societies. And that you know these ideas are, are linked in some important ways. I think he's right. The ecology would answer an enormous <laughs> number of those questions. Uh, can you imagine a decentralized government in Egypt? Um, well, I mean, they're. They they did used to have you know different kingdoms north and south, right? It wasn't always sort of one. fundamentally changed that all of the analyses you were you were looking mm -hmm. at Mubarak's Egypt yes. which had been there for a long time as I once looked yes. like at Suharto's Indonesia yes. which had been there for a long time um, I mean, I think there's no doubt that things have changed in very meaningful ways. We had no uh, scholars, journalists, people in government had no um, sense that the regime would fall as quickly as it did, that popular protests could have this kind of impact. But at the same time, I think we've seen a real um, sort of uh, reassertion of authoritarian um, sort of elite authoritarian cohesion, right, in terms of the impact of the military and it's, yes, in Egypt and its ability to sort of, yes, post-Mubarak. Mubarak is gone, but the regime is essentially the same. And if you think about the regime is coming to power in 52, um, really the domestic policy and, you know, to some degree the foreign policy um, uh, direction of the government has not changed so much. So what we may end up seeing is um, a very limited policy space in which Egyptian civilians are allowed to operate, but then essentially um, a situation where um, the nature of the regime itself has not really changed too much. And I, I, that's a very depressing, with, with very deep roots in what I'm talking about.
Yeah, I think there's no doubt that. <laughs> well, I think, I think that you know part of the answer is that authoritarians work very hard to make sure that that type of association does not form. Right. So until very recently in Egypt, a meeting of more than five people was illegal. Right. You had to get permission to hold. Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But you know what they would say is those were meetings that were taking place illegally. Right, that there was a there 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 are laws on the books which try to limit associational forms and types in authoritarian contexts like Egypt, so I don't think it is so um, surprising. But then, of course, you create an internet that allows people to create forms of social capital that we never dreamed possible, taking place in ways that are not physical meetings. Right, so the regime simply was not able to sort of update fast enough to keep up with the nature of technological change that allowed this to happen. Well, I mean, I think there was a sort of new um, dynastic succession that was becoming common in the region, and in a sense, the people, the public, responded to this. And, you know, one of the main reasons people went out to protest was they did not want to see hereditary succession in Egypt. They did not want Gamal Mubarak. And so, um, you know, there, are, there was sort of the proximate trigger of the Tunisian case, but um, the structure um, was related to this um, plan for hereditary succession, and the structural complaint that people had against the regime was related to this. I, I don't think there's any question that the modal Egyptian is a highly religious, very pious individual. So if we um, have a system of democratic government in Egypt which actually reflects the preferences of the citizenry, then this will, you know, then, then there will be public policies that are quite conservative in, that will be quite conservative in nature. The question for me, um, sort of watching the revolution unfold, and I hosted some Egyptian activists at my home over the weekend, um, you know, why would secular leftist liberal intellectuals, who really were the driving force behind the revolution, 
why would they work so hard to bring down this regime um, without guarantees that they would enjoy the types of protections for their art, for their intellectual work? And, um, you know, the, the couple that I hosted were Coptic Christians. They're leftists. They were incredibly involved in the protest movement. And um, they're less fearful of some of these outcomes than, you know, perhaps we in the West are, right? They're not as concerned. They're, they believe that the Muslim brothers um, have a very moderate pragmatist approach and that um, there certainly is a Salafist um, movement in Egypt that would be more radical in its orientation, but that this is quite a fringe group. And that um, perhaps the process of getting involved in um, free democratic politics for the Muslim Brotherhood may actually lead them to moderate in their negotiations with some of these influential liberals and leftists. But really, it's still um, very much in process. So um, I, don't, I don't think there are clear answers yet. Yes. In response to the back and forth, I don't know necessarily if uh, if elections do go through in Egypt, Tunisia, and the states of the Middle East are closed to this I don't know if there would be a resurgence of Muslim oriented policy or Islamic oriented policy. In the sense that these nations were under republics 50, 60 years ago. You have, for example, most of the I think this is right. If you look 50 or 60 years ago, indeed, these were much more secularly oriented societies. But I think the piece of the puzzle that maybe you're putting less emphasis on is what's happened post-67, right? So post-67, we've really seen a genuine resurgence in religious sensibility across many Muslim societies. So I, it's not clear you can compare sort of, you know, pre-52 policies, for example, to policies you would have now because you're really sort of leaving out that critical 30 years when we really did see um, a growing um, sort of desire to imbue daily life with, uh, with religion in countries like Egypt. I think we should stop there, okay. right? It's uh, almost 20 after. Thank you all very much. Thank you all. Thank you. Very soon, everyone, very soon.